Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 17 and the first episode of season 4 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Once upon a time there was a farm in Norway, with a large barn and a small yellow house. The place was run by resourceful people, who inspired me when I wrote my first novel. And it was full of girls in love with horses, who, as it turned out, never quit riding. On the contrary. So I have decided to contact some of them to see what they're up to now. And today you'll meet the first one, Catherine Futsa, the woman behind the internet community Ride Like a Viking. Okay, Catherine, so uh, welcome to this podcast. Thank you so much, Liva. It's a pleasure to see you again. Um, I dare not count the years since we met each other the first time, but we started riding at the same stable. That's decades ago. And because of Facebook uh, and some reunions that we've had, we had some sort of semi kind of kept in touch over the years. And um, then you started uh, this community, uh, Ride Like a Viking. And I was really interested to see, you know, what have you learned since last? Because, you know, (laughs) when we met the first time decades ago, we didn't know much, did we? We were positive and, you know, uh, we were there, but we, we, yeah, really at the starting point of our career as as uh, riders and horse people. And then um, I watched some of your videos and um, uh, I wondered if we could have like a main topic for this episode, that that could be... Uh, liberty work without treats. Does that sound like a plan? Yes, that's what I offer. I teach uh, horse owners and also riding instructors, you know, how to do liberty training and riding without treats. And I also like to start my episodes with uh, like the turning point that my guests have had, because many of the guests that I invite, they have had this point where they start to see things very differently. And I would be intrigued to know, when did you have that shift where you started to see the horse as something different than you used to do? Uh, that was definitely during the Mongol Derby in 2015. I signed up and participated in the world's longest and toughest horse race in Mongolia, which is 1,000 kilometers long. And uh, I went down there you know, as a riding instructor and horse trainer to train the horses and kind of fix things. But I couldn't be further from the truth because, um, you know, when the kids in Mongolia were riding uh, the horses bareback, galloping over the step, it looked like this manifestation of freedom. And it looked so easy. But definitely me and I think also several other of the Western riders, when we mounted the Mongolian horses, we were bucked off. And uh, that was really kind of feedback to me, I think, from the horse. That the horse told me, you are doing something wrong because these kids ride these horses without any problem. But you are being bucked off and the horses are stumbling and they just bolt with you. So what are you doing wrong? And then I, I kind of figured out that my soft supporting hands and, you know, um, what do you call inspirational leg aid that I was kind of constantly doing on the back of the of horses. The Mongolian horses, they are semi-wild and they depend on their ability to flee and to run in the terrain. So anything that kind of threatens that, they just want to get rid of from their backs. And they are pretty good at... Uh, 
bucking riders off as well. So, <laughs> so when I kind of realized that I just had to, I just had to let go. Definitely mentally and also physically. So I, I had to mount the horse and just see where the horse would carry me. And then after a while, I could come with some kind of suggestions when the horse was, didn't see me as a threat on their back. So it was a very, very steep learning curve. And it, it sounds like the main difference is that the horses that you meet in Mongolia, they are, um, how do you say it? They're less polished. They have more of the horse intact within them. So is it fair to say that you have the same horse in Norway, but it's kind of been molded into shape a bit earlier? And some of the signals are not there anymore, but inside they are the same. Yeah, I think all horses are, they are flight animals, you know, and they are herd animals and they eat grass. So that's kind of a common trait for all horses. But I think many of the horses in the Western world, they are, like you say, they are kind of shaped into tolerating much more than what the Mongolian horses would tolerate. You have a more natural horse because the Mongolians they have their horses outside 24-7 through the whole year and through the winter these horses need to find their own food and flee from predators you know they are on their own so if they become too human dependent and too tame they are not going to survive out in the wild versus you know we can have our horses we can put rugs on them and we can give them grains and have them inside and outside and handle them in a completely different way so it, it's a very very two very different horse cultures but the mongolians definitely have kept their horses very much intact and natural and they are rideable if you are able to get out of the horse's way yeah Yeah, sounds like a favor that uh, a lot of the Western horses also, or the horses in the Western world also would like to have benefited, I think. Yeah, but they are maybe not as um, clear in their feedback. <laughs> you know, they endure it and tolerate it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's a great way of uh, riding a horse. So would you say that... I'm I'm guessing that because I know the dates of when you went to the Mogul Derby and know when you started to ride, would it be fair to say that um, you had known before you went to Mongolia that it was important for you to get out of the horse's way, but and maybe also thought that you were that kind of a rider, but that these horses taught you something completely different? Yeah, they definitely taught me something com completely different because I, I viewed myself as... Um, you know, kind of technically good rider with supporting hands and supporting leg aid and, and kind of, I viewed myself as very, as very gentle. And, and it's kind of funny because no rider has ever said to anyone that I have hard hands. Everyone say that I, I ride with soft hands. And I also had the notion that I was riding with soft and supporting hands. But the Mongolian horses, they told me otherwise. They were like, you are trying to control me. Get out of my way, because if I have a rider like you on my back, I can't flee away from predators and I can't feed myself in this uh, landscape. So I don't want you on my back. And you would have involuntary dismounts. And, and also, I also learned that this is very much a mental state. Because if we think of controlling the horse and are afraid to let go, 
our body is going to do it ever so slightly. Although we kind of think that we have loose reins and have our legs off the horse, our body is, you know, going to tell the horse otherwise. And riding a horse is very intimate. We are kind of sitting on their back and they, I think that's how they know what we are thinking because our body does it even in the slightest way. And that's enough for a horse to, to pick it up. But um, many Western horses, they have kind of been numb to this. They've kind of been used to, used to it. They're like, this is just the way it is. But the Mongolian horses, they weren't used to this kind of uh, riding. So uh, <laughs> they would say, no way, <laughs> I'm not going out in the wilderness with you. <laughs> so, so when you, uh, you have this experience uh, and you're a horse owner at the time, so you come back to Norway... Uh, and home to your own sweet uh, horse. What happens then? Yeah, because um, yeah, we we have um, several horses, and kind of one of them, uh, my mare, who I now call my golden mentor. I had had troubles training her, and uh, she would kind of suddenly explode and buck me off, and she was very afraid of stuff and and such. And I had. In my mind, I had done kind of everything I could to train her as perfectly as possible. So she was kind of very obedient. It was, she was very easy to stop and move sideways and backwards and, and all that stuff. But she didn't really have any self-control at all. Because I felt that the minute I, I kind of rolled her on loose reins, she would buck me off or do something stupid. So I was like, she needs my help you know, to be able to uh, feel safe and, uh, and behave herself. Uh, so it was very kind of a very technical, complicated um, uh, thing to do to ride her. But then I came back from Mongolia and, uh, and I was like, oh my God, I, I, you know, I have her behavior and the way she is, it's my work. It's me as a horse trainer who has made her this way. I have been controlling her and uh, making her obedient and such. And poor Mare, she doesn't have any self-control. She has never felt like she has a choice. So I felt like I had to do something kind of completely different and not groundwork and horsemanship and move her hind end and front end and all that stuff because she was very good at that too. But to just... Maybe have her kind of taking her eyes a bit off me and actually ignore me a bit and we could just do something together. So I started then playing football with her with a kind of giant uh, yoga ball. And uh, that's all I did for quite a while. And that really, really kind of changed our relationship and made her much more, much braver. And one day she, she was like, she wanted to be ridden by me. And then I could ride her without reins and and anything and it was totally different riding experience and if somebody had told me that I would be able to ride that mare without reins I would think they were crazy but uh, it was all about me you know how I how I had trained her and that's maybe the blessing of being a horse trainer and also like we did earlier we were breeding horses we don't breed horses anymore now we take in rescues but the blessing of that is that you can't really blame someone else. And I, I hear that a lot like, yeah, it's the former trainer did this and that, or the former owner did this and that. And you have, have all of these kind of things that has happened in the horse's past. That is someone else's fault. Thank God. 
I didn't have anyone but me to blame. And then I could take the responsibility and actually do something about it. Although it kind of hurt, you know. Yeah, it is a very painful moment. I think the people I've met and uh, also myself included who reach that point where you think, hold on, have I really missed, you know, the core of what horses are and what riding really could be about? And all the stuff I used to do, actually, it makes no sense to the horse. Uh, when you when you reach that moment, you have a choice. You can say, "No, I'd rather just go on like I used to do. It's it's so it's it's fine." Or you can say, "Okay, this hurts. This is a painful insight, and it's going to be a lot of work to change because changing yourself is hard work. It's much easier to change the horse. No wonder why most trainers aim for changing the horse because that's done in a very short period of time compared to changing humans. But to have that point where you choose to go this way." This more challenging, but I also think more more rewarding way. So, so it started with you with Mongolia. You came back with your mare, and you started to experience with the football. I I gathered that this is something that suited was suited for her, not necessarily for any horse, but that was the way in to the communica- communication with this particular horse because they are for sure all different. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. And, and she she was definitely the kind of horse uh, that. It's very, very easy to catch her eyes. And she's also very sensitive. So it's very easy to move her around. And she's sensitive towards the leg aid and the rein aid and, and body language and all that stuff. But she was looking at me, but not necessarily in a good way. She had that fear in her when she looked at me. She was like, what's the next command? Or, or you know, so more training and more obedience would not have helped with her. I needed to do something completely different and do things, you know, together with her. And I could then communicate with her through the ball, actually. So she was running after the ball that I was sending off. I wasn't pointing and stepping and swinging and making her do stuff. And then she, I think she started to kind of own her own movements And she definitely came a whole lot braver. And she also became more comfortable when around me. Because if a horse looks at you in a bad way and is holding tension on the ground, you're not going to fix that by mounting the horse and starting riding the horse. You know, you're just going to carry that with you into the riding. So that's why I had always ever so slightly, you know, been holding short reins to make her stand still when I was mounting. That was just the way she was. If you didn't do it, she would, you know, kind of run off. But although my hands were very soft and polite and still, it's it's capturing the horse and making the horse stand still when they are running away in their head. So, um, yeah, I've been talking a lot about worry cups and how to empty worry cups in horses and such. But she definitely had a very small worry cup that was very easy to fill. And before I was able to kind of empty that worry cup, I uh, I was doomed to be bucked off in unexpected ways. But now, in hindsight, her bucking me off wasn't very unexpected when you think of it. But then I felt like it. I felt like I've done everything I can. You know, she's so obedient. She's this and she's that. And I've done so much. I've tried everything. But I hadn't tried everything. I tried the things I knew how to do. I think that's that's one of the stories that I tend to get from people, that when you meet that one horse, the uh, quote-unquote difficult horse, 
where where your old you know manners and way doesn't really work and you have to look for something else that's when you are at that point where you have the opportunity to see something else so when you yes. called her a golden mentor it makes perfect sense to me because i have one at home myself the horse that actually says that this is just not good enough for me and then you will have to do better or different whatever you want to call it but then the change begins and it's a journey isn't it yes because although i couldn't blame any other trainers than myself i could easily have blamed the horse that's i think what people normally would do yeah like i have trained hundreds of horses no one has been as bad as this one and then it's the horse's fault and we carry on because i think 90% of of horses except the mongolian ones <laughs> And they have many horses, they have millions of horses, but like the horses in the Western world, 90% of them tolerate this way of being trained and handled. And then you have a few percentage that doesn't. But it doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong with that 10% of horses. It might be that we are handling horses in a way that they tolerate, but isn't necessarily good for them. I would I would say that the 10% are likely to be the sound horses often. Yes. As in mentally sound. Uh, and when you describe your mare it's also something you see quite regularly that you, yeah you you control the body but the mind is somewhere else. The mind of the horse is somewhere else and and with all due respect uh, one of the problems also is that our mind is often also somewhere else. So so that's where you know a lot of people start when they when they meet this one difficult horse and and are forced like in a steep learning curve, curve to see something else. And what I like about you is that you have decided then to to try to involve other people and and share this knowledge and this way of thinking because I think it's it, I think it's really important to challenge that what we're doing today is based on a military tradition that had its reasons for being strict and and regulated and you know being the way it was because it was war. You trained horses for war. But we don't train horses for war anymore. We train for leisure or in some aspects also competitions. So it is, it's not a life or death thing. So we shouldn't treat the horses as though, though it was a life or death thing. But we do. Uh, and uh, I think the key word, uh, as you pointed out, also is control. We need yeah. and feel we need to control them. So can you say a little bit about you know how you went along to kind of let go a little bit more because I know from experience that it's really difficult because yes. every you know cell in your body is is kind of aimed towards you know you need to control you need to put the horse in place all those you know uh, things that you picked up at any you will pick up at any a riding school modern riding school So how, you know, that's, yeah, how, how was that journey for you? Yeah, I definitely, I, was, I also started to search, you know, on the internet for practical ways of, you know, actually doing this and, and how to get a self-controlling horse with a functional top line and hind leg engagement from self. And I was definitely very, very fascinated by Hempfling. He has many YouTube videos. He talks a bit in riddles, but... His body language and his communication with the horses is so clear and his aim is never to control the horse. And he can then take that connection he has built on the ground and bring it into the riding. And the horses have a functional top line and have self-carriage and hind leg engagement. And I was starting to think, you know, why? Uh, is this even possible? And, and now it makes perfect sense to me because when horses are happy, and forward and relaxed and they want to be where they are and do what they do their mental state is going to be in a good place and that's going to affect how they use their bodies 
But very often, the more we do to try to squeeze it out of the horse, the worse of a mental state the horse is going to be in, and then that's going to affect how they use their bodies. Although we might think it looks beautiful. The tail is whipping, yeah, the, the back is dropped, and you have kind of these flared nos nostrils and a whole lot of yeah, things that aren't really that pretty, although the horse is moving prettily. And you have a rider doing a whole lot of stuff. So definitely Hempfling and uh, Warwick Schiller. I uh, learned very much from him. And Anna Blake. She is so awesome. Her blogs. And I still use Anna Blake's blogs kind of every day when I go to meet my horses. I have her voice in my ears. She's like, let the air rest. Breathe. And then I can do that. And I, the horses can then approach me and take the initiative instead of me always having this agenda yeah now I'm going to do this I'm going to do that I'm going to make this video and I'm going to train like this and I you know I'm going to the horses with my head full of this and I grab them and although they are standing still and allowing me to grab them it doesn't mean they like it no Anna Blake is brilliant when uh, when I had the first interview on this English podcast um, I think maybe uh, three or four months after I started the Norwegian one uh, I had her as my first guest because I wanted to set the tone for the podcast. And I, I think she was the perfect person to do that. I think she's brilliant. Yeah. And she's she so many layers of, and yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah, she could put into words the stuff I was kind of feeling and thinking, but I, I couldn't kind of find the words for it. So, uh, and then I started to blog myself. And I think that's how the community started. I just... I was a brim full of all this new knowledge and the, the process I was going through that I wanted others to learn this as well. Sharing is caring, isn't that what they say? I think it's I think it's really important to start, you know, when you start with your journey and you see what you see, it's it feels important to share it because it's it's um, it makes such a huge difference for both horse and rider. Yes, it does, and it does make a difference to the one who is teaching too, because often you learn very much from teaching others or for just describing your thoughts like Anna Blake does. Like make it into something uh, that's more kind of touchable and more practical in a way. It's bigger than what happens in your head. I think yeah. like with me and my podcast and with you and your community and blogging and with Anna and blogging, it, it kind of also forces you to be more conscious, conscious about what you do and what you think and where it's coming from. So I think it's really, I think, the part where you share it, it opens more doors. And I can also see with in my experience with this podcast that I get contacts from all over the world with people coming in with their stories. So it, it kind of just grows automatically, which I think is brilliant. Yes. And I, I always like this uh, approach of it's so easy to find bad stuff, you know, and negative stuff and point out, out what's wrong. You know, any idiot can point out, out, out what's wrong. But not so many people are able to put into words and practice, you know, another way of training horses than mounting them, making sure they stand still, pick up the reins and ride them where you want to go. You know, that's completely normal thing to do in any riding lesson. Any rider would do this. But that's putting yourself in your own needs first. And, you know, to just ride the horse when the horse wants to be ridden and wait until that happens be able to mount on loose reins and then ride forwards and see where the horse is carrying you that's a completely different way of actually building a relationship with the horse and 
it gives us the ability to make our ID the horse's ID. Because if the horse carries us to the gate, which they very often do, because that's where they want to go. They want to go to the other horses. They want to be done with the riding. We can do some sensible work by the gate. And then maybe rest the horse towards the scary corner and make the corner the favorite place. So you get kind of rid of these magnets and anti-magnets that are affecting how the horse moves so that we don't have to use our riding aids and our riding signals to control the horse by preventing them from rushing towards the gate and pushing them into the corner. All horses, you know, can maintain a speed on the track and, and they can even be attracted by the corners if we make that the favorable thing to do. But if I tell this to people like, yeah, ride when the horse wants to be ridden and once you mount, drop the reins and ride off and see where you end up, they think I'm crazy because everyone is so used to making the horse stand still, mounting, picking up the reins and make the horse go where they want to go. And I was there too, you know, before I went to Mongolia. That was like how riding was done. Yeah, that's what you're taught, I think. Yeah. Yeah, once you enter the stable and start your first lessons at a riding school, you know, because it's it's so easy to understand when people say, you know, look like a leader, you know, look bigger, uh, claim your space. It's it's very, you know, you can relate to that. But, but uh, you know, taking the horse as a horse and... And giving the horse time to accept you and stuff, that's, that's more like a, mm, don't really know that language from before. Um, I'm, I'm the leader, I'm telling him. It can't be the opposite. You know, if you, if you don't keep the horse under control, you know, it's dangerous. Yeah, and I'm like, it's so dangerous to ride a horse that needs to be controlled all the time. Yeah, but that's somehow, that's, uh, yeah, people really don't understand the difference, that the real danger is you know, the controlled shutdown horse. Yeah. But a horse that's open and, uh, and uh, you know, there's a real relationship and there's real communication. You have so much, you know, it's a, such a better life for both horse and rider, I would say. Yes, and much safer to ride. And definitely if we are able to empty the worry cup uh, with some that simple exercises we can do, like the bend to stop, if both the horse and the rider knows this. Because it's not, it's not about really keeping the horse calm at all times either. That can also be a very common pitfall. Yeah, yeah, we make, must make sure to not make the horse nervous and not exceed their threshold and keep them calm at all times. And if then, as you say, the horse looks calm and confident but has inner turmoil, this is going to build up until it overflows. So the clue here is to then be able to empty the worry before it overflows. And that, that was what happened with my mare. She had kind of this brimful worry cup at all times. And I wasn't emptying it because I was trying to fix it by controlling her. And it didn't work out. So when you say liberty work without treats, because I've talked to many trainers and also, you know, doing my own thing about this, is that in a sense, the way the horse feels is the treat. Yes, exactly. And we can also be the treat by taking the guard. And now I have to talk about another huge inspiration of mine, which is Elsa Sinclair and her movie Taming Wild. That movie was so awesome because she 
describes in this movie how it's possible to tame a wild Mustang without treats and without ropes. So she's in a huge fenced area and that's where she started communication with the horse. Yeah, yeah, she gets uh, this wild Mustang, probably from the Wild Mustang Federation or something, and very, very strict rules on what fencing you must have and, and such. Yeah, the, and the mare, she wasn't in a herd. She was alone in this fence. So that, of course, her, horses are herd animals. They want company. So that probably makes it a bit different what she's doing than what I'm doing here, because I have a herd of horses. They are together. Uh, they would not be as kind of depending on me for company. Yeah, yeah but that aside, uh, what I learned from, uh, from watching the movie was that it was about taking the guard. So she could be with her wild Mustang mare and she would gaze out at the environment and she would be the one taking the guard for the mare. And sometimes the mare would be the one taking the guard a bit. But usually it was Elsa who took the guard and that was her reward for the horse. And looking at the mare was pressure. So that's kind of actually how we start in the Ride Like a Viking members is I think it's about being able to take the guard and show the horses that we are present enough to actually take the guard. And that's where many, many of us humans, uh, and me included, probably, you know, we fall through at the very start. And I have this very interesting case uh, going these days, uh, a Norwegian uh, trotter, cold-blooded trotter. Uh, rider fell off and uh, was picked up by the ambulance and that's how the riding trip and the stuff like that kind of happening and the mare is actually quite okay but she's very pretty and she's kind of red with a white mane and such and she's also very interested in humans but she looks away and she approaches me with the shoulder ever so slightly and it's not very very kind of clear but if you first notice you will see it immediately that you don't want to be approached by, by a horse like this, ever so cute. So if we don't see it, we would probably start petting the horse and, and, and kind of like, oh yeah, she wants to be with me and oh, she's so cute and she's a rescue and I rescued her and let's scratch her. And by doing that, we are telling the horse that we aren't present at all. Because if we can't see that that horse is approaching us with the shoulder and is looking slightly away, how on earth are we going to uh, discover wolves in the bushes? So I made a video of this and I got very, very many comments from people who were offended that I didn't scratch the mare. They were actually sad I didn't pet her. They felt it like heartbreaking that I could just walk away from her when she did it. So I didn't start to chase her away or claim my personal space or do anything. And I didn't back away from her. I just turned around and walked away. That's a, in my in my book. That's a polite way of telling a horse that the way you approach me now is not okay. Yeah, I don't want to engage in this. And after doing that a couple of times, she actually walked off, and she just stood kind of parallel to me and was resting. And then people would say, "Oh, now she's giving up on you, and she doesn't like you anymore." And I was like. It's not about the horse liking me, you know. It's about being, in some way or the other, communicate to the horse that I see you. I see what's going on here. 
and do some kind of action. And it doesn't have to be a correctional action or, or making the wrong thing hard or, or anything. Like it. it could also be just, I'm not going to engage in this. And the horse will notice that we notice. But if we don't notice, the horse will notice that as well and will never trust us. Ever so cute. And, uh, and that's how you suddenly then get thrown off in the middle of a trail because something happens and the horse wants to save himself. Doesn't trust you to be the leader because you are not the leader, the present leader on the ground either. So that can be a huge reward to be able to take the guard. But it does hurt a little bit. You, you probably need to find stuff in yourself that you're doing that you're not even aware of you're doing. And that's when Anna Blake is such a great woman because she's like, you know, just let the air rest. See what happens and don't take it personal. I think that's, that's one of the hard parts for people, not to take it personal because we, we invest so much love, so much passion and so much money in our horses that you know it's it's it is scary and also very painful for for people when the horse choose something else for example you know it's very tempting i think just to scratch him to you know say i'm a friend hello i'm i'm fine but that's not really horse language you don't see them do that when they talk to each other so so i think it is really important to to to, to be clear that horses are horses and humans are humans i think Warwick Schiller quoted somebody saying they need to be seen heard felt and gotten uh, as do we but but in different ways. So what feels comforting for a human can be very troubling for a horse, and it's very difficult for people to see the difference. Yeah. So it's it is a, it's a painful journey to see that, you know, allowing a horse to be a horse means sometimes that I have to not do what I want to do. I yeah. want to you know mm, cuddle him and you know hug him and do all that stuff, but um, I can't do that any time I like because that's not his language. And that's that's not the feel he needs from me, but that's uh, it is hard I think sometimes because we are so damn human and that's the human way to comfort that's the human way to talk but they are horses so I think one of the things that I've learned most from is just you know to spend a day in the field watching the horses and see what do they do when when they have their spare time how yes, do they communicate definitely. and what do they do yeah. and then you can see that they don't really do what we do. And then you have to kind of, you know, think to yourself, how can I be, you know, more of a horse-friendly person to my horse? Because for sure they scratch each other, but, but you and I know how they approach one another if scratching is needed. Yeah, they don't approach with the sh shoulder looking slightly away. No. Or turn behind and towards uh, a but horse it looks, and switch but their I tail. Think, but I also understand, you know, the people who kind of criticize the, the clip because I've seen the clip because... They do, when they scratch each other, often, you know, walk towards each other and then, you know, pass each other a little and then start scratching the withers. But seeing the shoulder takes training. That yeah. the shoulder can be so different. I, I remember when people have seen that um, documentary Buck, uh, about Buck Brenneman, there was a yeah. horse there that was kind of messed up and would attack anybody who approached. And then he had a person working with him that you know, came out to the horse and started to put on a blanket and doing stuff. And then the horse suddenly attacked out of nowhere. No, it wasn't out of nowhere. Because the shoulder was asking the yeah. man, can I move you? What happens now? Is this safe? And the guy was kind of not realizing that he was kind of taking some steps back, saying, no, it isn't safe. No, you can't trust me. And then at some point the horse has attacked. But the shoulder is telling mm. all the time, you are in danger. But if you yeah. can't read the shoulder, then it's, yeah, you, for sure it's happened without any kind of reason. The horse is crazy. No, it's not crazy. The horse is bred and raised by human. 
a human being. And horses shouldn't be bred and raised by human beings. They need to be bred and raised by horses. Yes. And then we can, you know, uh, enter the stage a bit later. But otherwise, we're gonna we mess them up basically, and we make them dangerous. Yeah, and I also love to study uh, our herd of horses and. How I see it now is that, yeah, sometimes they scratch each other mutually and such, but very often they are taking turns in taking the guard. Like if you never see all, at least not my horses, they're not all of them lying flat out sleeping. There's always someone or maybe several who are standing and taking the guard. So that's very, very interesting and a very good reward we can give horses. And I think it's very interesting also to to be... Um, sensitive about the situations where your horse is actually the guard because my horse always approached me by the gate uh, or by the gate but sometimes he doesn't and that's because he's in charge of taking care of the surroundings so for sure I can go and get him but I would much rather just sit down and give him a few minutes so he can kind of get the next guy to take over and then he can come at his own pace Yes, because it's so tempting to um, or so easy to overlook the fact that uh, he's in charge of something here. He's, he has responsibility yeah. and, and to, to intervene and, and uh, you know, act as if it doesn't exist. It's, it's not the best way to build a relationship with a horse because then you don't understand their world and you really need to understand it. Yes, and a great way to learn more about horses is to actually observe them without an agenda. And I, I think now I take it more and more kind of as a compliment if I enter the pasture and the horses kind of keep on doing what they were doing before I arrived. But I see that kind of puzzles people a bit. Yeah, because then it gets kind of personal. You know, why don't they want to be with yeah. me? Yeah, I was so yeah. nice with him yesterday. Why won't he come here now? And they, they come here at farm stays or whatever, and they expect me to be the kind of horsewoman who goes to the gate and calls my horses, and then they come kind of running. And I'm like, oh, God forbid, I do not want that at all. I don't want to be crowded by a bunch of needy horses. You know, and, and uh, no, I, I want them to keep on what they're doing. And sooner or later, they will notice me and usually come and say hi if I just give it some time. And if they don't, that's okay too, you know, but they have kind of their herd life. And if I can be a part of it, like I'm basically like I don't exist <laughs> almost, like I'm, I'm just part of their herd and they don't come crowding me when I call them and uh, and all that stuff, then I'm... I feel like I'm blessed because they have their rich, fulfilled life and they allow me to be a part of it. And once I, I actually was put by the horses to take the guard for a filly who was uh, lying and sleeping. They, are, they can be a bit, um, what's it called? Sleazy too, because then I was entering the herd and Dean Fari was definitely standing there taking the guard for this filly who was lying down and sleeping. And when I came... I was kind of just trying to mingle with them and not have their attention on me or anything. I was just walking around. He just looked at me and he left to go eat. And he was like, now you take the guard for that filly so I can go eat. And I, then I stood there and was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of cold, and, but it was so funny experience. And then one of the other horses came and woke her up. And I've never seen that happen before. But he, I think he, because then I started to lose my concentration and I was filming and doing stuff. And maybe he was like, this is not safe. If you were filming, it wasn't safe. Yeah. 
They, yeah, yeah. They, I've had this. I've seen so many times because many people ask me, "Why don't you have more pictures of your horse and more filming?" Well, because if I push a record on the camera, he is gone. You know, yeah. that's enough for him. So, so yeah. yeah, it's they. They are so sensitive. Yeah, and that was happened because I was kind of talking to the camera, and I, this is on YouTube, and then he came and woke her up physically, and took her away. But I'm still glad I got it caught on camera. But it was, to me, it was like, oh my God, I'm actually trying to, I'm figuring out what they're actually doing and I can actually participate in it in my own clumsy way. But still, you know, <laughs> I was part of the herd and that would never have happened if I had gone out into the pasture and start calling them and having them running to me for scratches or treats or, or whatever. That's not kind of the relationship and, and love and leadership I want with my horses at all. I think it grows out of the, the control aspects again, because, you know, uh, you and me, good friends. Uh, I want to go to the cinema and I call you and say, you know, Catherine, would you like to join me for a, for a trip to the cinema and see this and this movie? And you say, no, I'm too tired. doesn't mean that we're not friends. It makes sense. And, and it, to me, it's just the same with the horses. If my horse do not approach me and, and signals that this is the day, then I'm not riding him. That's not going to happen. Uh, and I don't take it personal. You know, it can be a tons of reasons. It can, can be that the, the weather was hard that night. Uh, he hasn't slept for f 15 hours. It can be so many reasons. So I think it's, to me, it's really important that we are, we are in it together. You know, that it's, it's an active yeah. choice on his behalf and it's an active choice also on my behalf. And uh, I remember once I had a, I never use my cell phone when I'm at the stable, but sometimes for, you know, there are emergencies that I need to kind of spend time on the phone. So I've been in the pasture and, and talking on the phone. And once I talked to a horse person and she said, isn't that a bit, you know, unpolite to speak on the phone when you're with the horses? And I'm thinking, no, I can do my thing when I'm with the horses because I don't expect them to, to, uh, yeah. have a hundred percent energy into my direction. Now I'm doing my thing and I am allowed to do that. And then I come back and do their thing or our thing. But so, it, mm. but I'm not sitting on a horseback and, and talk on the phone or, or groom my horse and spend real time with my horse and, and also spend time on the phone. That's completely different. So, you know, you, you get kind of a, a feel of what you like and you do not like, and what kind of a horse person you would like to be for your horse over time. But that's so true. But, uh, but the concept but the concept of, yeah. no, I'm not riding him today because he doesn't want to get ridden. Or like a friend of mine, no, I didn't come today because he didn't want to be transported. And then people say, yeah, but you missed an opportunity. Yeah, but maybe the horse sensed that this is not a journey that's worth taking. And the horse was right. So, you know, you, you have to kind <laughs> of, you know, make your choices on what kind of relationship you want to have with your horse. Yeah, and Anna Blake has many good blogs about this too. Our neediness. Like we need to have the horse liking us and showing that they love us. And we need that the horse approaches us. And and yeah, if we can just let that go. Yeah, it's hard, but we can be part of the herd. Like a real part of the herd if we put that neediness away. And that's a much greater gift. And also, how awesome that um, we can actually allow our horse to communicate. Like, go away if they want to. That's uh, 
really that it's so important with some horses, especially the ones who have been ground tied. And this can happen at Liberty too. Like we can control horses at Liberty. And this is not what this is about. Liberty needs to be Liberty. Yeah, by giving choices and uh, being able to take the guard and wait for relaxation. That's the greatest gift we can give any horse. Let the air rest, like Anna Blake says. Yeah, there was a recent scientific study now that um, measured the anxiety level in horses that were petted. And it went sky high. <laughs> and we, of course, want to love on them and want to show our affection, like you say, and that's our language. And we are so consumed by our own emotions that we don't see that the horse is actually not enjoying this. And on the other hand, it's quite difficult to also see that the horses aren't enjoying it because horses aren't very easy to read. They can look so pretty and happy while holding tension that my approach has now been to wait for relaxation. Like... When they have yawned, licked and chewed, lower their necks and started breathing normally and, you know, show signs of relaxation, then I know they're relaxed. A horse standing still with a high-held neck and the ears forward, probably not very relaxed. It is a journey. Yes. Uh, and it's, I think it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you and, and hear about, you know, your journey with your horses. I think it's, again, it's, I think sometimes it's hard to say that this is this podcast episode and we're reaching the end, but I'm, I'm thinking we are about that point now because um, I want to talk for a few more hours, but I'm thinking it's, it's, not, the, it's not the right way to do it. Um, it's also a question about controlling yourself. Um, but I have this one signature question, uh, Katrina, that I would like to ask you before we, we say goodbye. And that is, is there something in particular that you think it is really important, besides, you know, we talked about tons of things already, but that you think it's really important that people know about horses that is, you know, easily overlooked? Yeah, I would say, you know, start at a distance away from the horse and see what happens. And whatever happens, you know, don't take it personal. <laughs> But the connection and communication with horses, they, it starts at distance where a horse can actually see us. That's how we are able to communicate with them through body language. We can't do that in their space. And leadership is not the same as control. No, leadership is taking responsibility. Although it hurts, you know, don't blame the farrier or the former trainer or your riding instructor or the former owner or what happened two years ago. You know, doesn't help the horse. Take responsibility and try to find three solutions. Because that's what leaders do. Leaders find solutions and they show the way. Non-leaders, they focus on problems and will not find the way. Yeah, I think that's about it. And yeah, making your ID the horse's ID is a big thing here. Take the time to make our ID the horse's ID. And what I usually say now to my members is that make the wrong thing, you know, valuable work, things you would do anyway, and make the right thing easy. 
And I think if we can do those things, we are going to come uh, take a huge leap forwards in the way our horse is going to perceive us as their you know, partner and trusted leader. The word leadership is, you kind of, you've now kind of said something about what you, you know, what you mean by leadership. But I think, uh, Sabina Birman had a very interesting picture, I think, to say what leadership really is. She said that uh, a young uh, child can lead an adult man through the forest if the child knows where they're going and he is lost. So it's not about being big. It's not about, you know, I have a vast experience and I've lived so long and I know this. It's about knowing the way. It's about being confident where you are. So I think that's, to me, that's really one of the best images of what leadership is. And also, like you said, uh, making my idea the horse's idea, somebody could easily say that, yeah, but that sounds like manipulation, doesn't it? That you manipulate the horse to want to have your idea. But no, it's not necessarily that. It's it's having, a, like at work, you have a, a boss and he has a vision and you understand it and you like it and you pursue it. That's yeah. leadership, you know? Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, most humans, they don't like to be controlled and micromanaged. It's horrible to have kind of a boss who goes like, did you answer that email? Make sure to come in time. Make sure to do this, that, pick up the phone, you know. We go crazy, but it's so much more fun to work for someone who actually has a vision and knows, you know, where we're going and you want kind of the same thing and you work towards that. Then it doesn't feel like work and we can do the same with the horses. But of course, definitely, we first need to give them a choice. I remember Leslie Desmond said that for yes to have meaning, no must be okay. Yeah. So if I should make some kind of summary of this episode, I would say that that's the challenge for people to accept that there is actually also a no in the horse and respect that no. Because without it, then there will never be a real companionship, I think. Yeah, that's a wise word there and something I'm definitely working, uh, working on these days <laughs> with myself because the horse trainer in me wants to fix things and pop out and make sure the horse doesn't turn the hind end towards me and, you know, all that kind of stuff, making the wrong thing hard, the right thing easy. But I, I recently got, um, yeah, another rescue. And um, he definitely taught me that lesson. Like, sometimes it's okay to say no and just don't be so concerned about the outcome. Just see what the horse does. And eventually he came along and uh, and said hi, but that was on his own choice, not because I moved his hind end over and made him look at me and step backwards. You know, it was so important to allow that horse to walk off and ignore me and say no. That was made him actually relax. I think it is important to realize that a lot of the times when they say no, they say no for a very good reason. So when you then choose not to respect a no, you are kind of violating a lot of things. So, uh, yeah, but it's, it's a lifelong and very rewarding journey. I think that would be the main, I think that would be the, you know, tone that I would like us to end on. Because I think a lot of the people that I meet say, oh, well, it's too much work and it's so hard for me and it's difficult to change. And yeah, it is difficult to change, but it is also a gift. Because you will have all the tools you need to fix stuff that will 
happen. You know, as I said, this is not about keeping the horses calm at all times. Worry will come yeah. from the environment or from our riding and from our handling. But if we are able to empty it and communicate with the, to the horse that we are actually able to take the guard, we have a solution for the problems and the tools to fix them. And that it's actually much less time and much less work than to encounter a problem. And then you need to teach the horse all the stuff it hasn't learned for you to have the tools to be able to fix the problem you're experiencing now. So it, um, it's a very good toolbox to have as well. And it takes time to relearn. So, yeah, yeah so I'm thinking, you know, as early as possible, if people could find this way of understanding and reading horses, there would be so much easier on both parties. Yes, because a horse who has been controlled for 10 years, most of its life, like the video series I have with the Black Mare, giving her choices, you know, she was worse than what she ever been before. <laughs> because she had no idea what to do when she wasn't told what to do. But now she has a toolkit and a knowledge of self-control and, uh, and choices that makes her much, much easier to ride. So if something pops up, you can easily be fixed with the tools she has. But when I first started where I had, you know, make the whole grounding and that took a while, but not that long. I think 30 sessions, maybe 40. I wasn't counting sessions, but you know, it wasn't. It wasn't a... It wasn't a million years. It, it wasn't a million years, but the horse will tell you when it's time to move on. You know, that's the true magic of this approach too, because you can't really force things through. And what they learn from their own experiences and their own knowledge is something they own much, much deeper than just being told to do something. Perfect, Catherine. Keep up, uh, keep up the good work. You too, Liva. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, it was a pleasure. See you next time. See you next time. Take good care. Bye for now. Bye for now. You have just heard episode 17 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. I want to thank my guest Catherine, my composer Frederick Blom, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.